Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. So I'm absolutely delighted and thrilled on this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast to be talking to Lord Richard Layard. Now, I think that the title that perhaps best sums up Richard is the UK's happiness czar. He has a huge reputation in thinking about happiness and economics. He's written a number of books on the subject, which I'm really looking forward to talking to him about. Uh, He's also currently the director of the Wellbeing Programme at the Centre for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics and has a wealth of knowledge in happiness and why money alone cannot make us happy. Richard, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's lovely to talk to you. Um, of course, I never was the happiness star, but <laughs> you, you can use that term. <laughs> I think that's what everybody who knows you called you, and you always are so cheery. But, but tell me, um, when you were at school, did, did you think that you would have a career in economics and a focus on happiness? Well, um, I've got a photograph of myself with my best friend on a cliff. And I remember uh, discussing what we wanted to do in life. And I do remember saying I would like to be a social reformer. I don't think I thought, I don't, I don't think I'd heard of economics. Um, I, I'd, uh, I'd actually heard of Beatrice and Sidney Webb, um, who my, my mother once met. Um, and I thought it was quite nice to be able to do something like what they did. Um, but I only became an economist, in fact, in my 30s, um, when I realised that that uh, was really um, the only way of thinking that tried to uh, look at the overall problem of social choice, balancing one priority against another, uh, even though it necessarily perhaps didn't do it as well as, it, uh, as we now think it could be done with the aid of well-being science. And why, why were you drawn towards um, issues around social justice? Was there something in your childhood that made you feel that, um, that you wanted to make a real difference in that way? Um, I, I think my mother had uh, been involved in that sort of thing a bit uh, when she was young. So she had done a survey uh, of sweated trades in, uh, in Hoxton. Um, in the uh, the 1920s, um, and um, I, I I I knew, um, for example, uh, 
Frank Pakenham, who was the Labour candidate for Oxford, failed to get elected, um, but eventually joined the House of Lords. Um, and um, that was the ethos, of course, quite strongly just after the war when I was at school. Um, it may surprise people that um, uh, although I was at Eton, all my friends were Labour in that period, as indeed was the headmaster of Eton. And so was it, was it that, the, the, the group of friends you had around you, your parents, the headmaster at Eton, that made you think differently about social justice that took you on this path? I think there was a, a feeling that, um, you know, we should, we should all be trying to um, contribute to a better society. Um, and that, you know, what, what the point of our education was to help us to do that. Um, I, I wouldn't say that the actual content, <laughs> the Latin and Greek, <laughs> um, made one particularly well qualified to do it. But that was the general uh, idea. Um, and then, of course, we went and did our national service before we went to university. Um, and then at university, um, again, the, the, the ethos was, um, uh, you're sort of groping around, but how can, how can one make uh, the most useful uh, contribution? Um, and what about your faith, Richard? I mean, did, did that have any part to play in... I was very, very pious um, at Eton. Uh, and up to my second year in, in uh, university, um, though I began, of course, to have, have problems with it. And um, I had pretty much lost my faith, I suppose, uh, when the Dean of Kings threw himself off the uh, chapel uh, roof onto the pavement below. And I thought, you know, if God can't save uh, save uh, a man of the class. <laughs> um, we can't really have that kind of faith. I still actually have a belief um, in a purpose in the universe and in a sort of basic um, goodness that's been put into each person. If only we can make contact with it ourselves and in others. So um, I, I, I think um, I, I'm not at all. One of, one of those um, non-believers who, who wants to go around bashing, uh, bashing the, the, uh, the churches. Um, but I do think that now, and this is really, really crucial, um, because the creeds have become pretty implausible to most Europeans, um, we absolutely have to find a secular ethics that is not based um, on the idea that ethics is... Uh, obedience to the will of God. We've got to find um, a system of ethics that's based on human need. And I, that's why I, I'm very excited by having got involved in this, this movement to try and um, promote a happier world by getting individuals to commit themselves to trying to make um, as much happiness in the world around them as they can as that sort of fundamental purpose in life. Um, and I do think that that is a, a terrifically important thing for from a social point of view that children should start thinking that way very young um i think it's also of course not just that um, trying to create happiness in the world around you is good for the other people but it's also actually 
deeply satisfying for you. Uh, and I think there are too many young people now who are sort of really at, at sea, having been told, you know, your job is to make the most of yourself, especially if it's put, do as well as you can relative to other people. Uh, that is, of course, a zero-sum game for society. If every winner, there's a loser. Uh, and we have to get away from that to a positive-sum game where individuals are aiming uh, to contribute to the lives of other people and get as much of their own happiness as possible through doing that rather than through, as it were, promoting their interest um, uh, apart from other people. So I think that there's a huge cultural transformation which is needed and um, I think it has to be expressed in secular terms. And, and if you go back through history, the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, talked about happiness or ego, uh, they would talk about. So it's been a philosophy that's been around for a long time. Why do you think more people, or why don't you think more people embrace the importance of, of happiness? Where's it lost its track? It's very peculiar, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, roughly speaking, I suppose you could say that that um, in the Middle Ages, um, people were aiming at happiness, but in the next world. Um, and they thought they should be good in this world in order to achieve happiness in the next. Um, in the 18th century, that idea changed to what I think is the most important idea of the modern age, um, that we should try to produce a, a society in which people are as happy as possible in their lives in this world um, and that was the prevailing opinion amongst you might call in the enlightened classes um, in certainly in Britain and America uh, a couple of hundred years ago. Um, somehow or other I think it's partly because the science of happiness didn't exist so it, it, it seemed difficult to operationalize certainly from the point of view of public policy. We got um, terrible philosophies uh, in the 19th century uh, uh, where struggle was was elevated and it, it, it was thought to be petty to, to a modern society where people were actually really just enjoying themselves and feeling feeling terrific about life and them and, the, uh, uh, and other people um, and and then we had behaviorism where the belief was that you couldn't possibly know what was going on inside any other human being, as if you could ever have had a society in which people didn't know something about what other people were feeling. And now we are in a much better position. We've got uh, modern psychology, which uh, studies how other people feel and what causes that. Um, and so we've got a, a knowledge uh, base from which to think about how to create a happier society. Um, I think that's a, a, a much better situation. There's, there's been this terrible um, focus on the GDP for lack of, of any better <laughs> alternative conception of what is a good state of affairs. Um, and there's been disillusioned with that even before the financial crash. Um, I think COVID is a huge, hugely interesting moment because it is has is leading people to think about what does really matter to them. And I think um, 
from that inquiry, I think, will come uh, a much better chance for this idea that what we should be doing is looking for the things that make us and others uh, feel fulfilled um, in their lives, uh, rather than uh, just a philosophy that's based on what you can can get. Um, so it's a very it's a a very important moment. It's a very very big opportunity. Um, a, a, as you know, Mark, we founded an organisation, Action for Happiness, uh, ten years ago. Now it's, we're just coming up to the the tenth anniversary, um, which is uh, promote, promotes this idea that you should be trying to create as much happiness as you can in the world, and that's what its members pledge to do. Uh, and they meet regularly uh, together. Um, in order to support each other, to be uplifted, based on really good materials that come out from the movement. Um, the group start with a course which has been shown to lift people's happiness more than finding a partner or a job. Um, and I think that we, we, we desperately need not just um, a, a sort of debate about um, what's most important in life, um, because what's really important is the habits and norms and assumptions that we, we, we live by from day to day. Uh, and that's only developed really by, by um, sort of endless repetition. <laughs> um, in, enough, enough experiences, enough good experiences with other people um, associated with good forms of living and good values. Um, and I think there's no society in which the values of the society have not been embodied in institutions uh, ever before. At the moment, we've got kind of plenty of good ideas around the place, but a, a terrific lack of institutions that really provide the emotional solidity behind those ideas. So this is why... Um, I'm hoping that this is now going to be a big opportunity for organisations like Action for Happiness. And, and Richard, what do you say to those people that think that the idea of um, promoting happiness is it's sort of nebulous or it's self-indulgent? Well, I think it's quite wrong, isn't it? Um, we, we, um, we, we should always start uh, not by thinking about what an indiv individual should be trying to do but what situation in society is the best so i i, I would start by thinking about um the good life by thinking about what's a good situation for society and i i i think uh, that um many people would think that the best form of society is one where people are feeling uh, really satisfied and fulfilled um with their lives and and, and enjoying uh, what what uh, what goes on, um, and, and once you start with that idea, then the question is how should an individual behave? Obviously, an individual should behave in a way that tends to produce the best situation, which means that they're producing a situation for other people, at least as much as for themselves. So I don't self indulgence is the, the opposite of it. Um, and, and I, think, um, pe I, I think people often don't realize a, 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 a sort of fundamental principle which actually applies to every ethical system, 
which is that every individual matters equally. But that's very firmly embedded in this idea that we're talking about. Everybody's happiness matters equally. And it, uh, the job of each one of us is to produce as much happiness as we can uh, for others and ourselves um, in that situation. And how does that apply um, in your mind to the world of work? Because you often hear people say, well, work's work and it, it shouldn't be pleasurable and you earn money and get on with it and stop moaning. But what's your view about happiness and, and work? Well, I think that, um, as, as I was saying before, a, 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 an important route to happiness uh, is to feel that you're making a useful contribution. Uh, and we want everybody to feel that about uh, about their work. Um, that's number one, that you've got to feel that what you're doing is worthwhile. Um, number two, of course, is that um, you have some agency in doing that. You, you, you've, it's got to be clear what your objective is, but within that, you want to have as much freedom and control over um, what you do as possible. But then third, of course, you want to have your contribution recognized and supported if you're uh, in need of support in carrying it out. Um, and I think that these three, three principles um, of purpose, um, autonomy and recognition and support these are, are basic, the basic principles for a good working environment. I know, I think you've got six, but <laughs> those are the three that, that, uh, that uh, Edward Deasy uh, has identified and that, that make sense to me. And um, I think that uh, we, we, we absolutely need to, to recognise the importance of workers uh, experiencing fulfilment is what is, I think, at least a quarter of of our waking life um, is a very, very important um, part of all our uh, experience. So then the question obviously is, um, what, what it, who, who is management uh, responsible for? Um, are they only responsible for um, the return to the shareholder? Or are they also responsible to the workers, even if it's not always in the interest of a shareholder. And I, I found it really wonderful that the US Business Roundtable last summer said for the first time that they think, yes, business has a, a, a direct responsibility, not only to the shareholder, but to the workers. So that means that managers have to go beyond um, that aspect of worker welfare which is, is, is in the interest of the shareholders. They've got to want the workers to feel satisfied um, for itself, as well as because that's good for productivity. And I think that you know, when, uh, when management sort of introduces new schemes that uh, appear to be supportive of worker welfare, if they just do it because they think it's good for productivity. Um, that's not enough. I think it's got to be heartfelt 
it's got to be the case that we step back to the basic principle we were talking about before. I mean, what is an organization for? An organization is only justified by, and, and all organizations operate on license, uh, it's only justified because it contributes to the happiness of the community. It contributes to the, the welfare of the consumers. <laughs> Obviously, that wouldn't exist without them. Um, it, it, it contributes to the, the welfare um, of the shareholders and the suppliers, but it also contributes to the welfare of the workers. And it's that, it's that combined contribution to the life of the community which is justifies the, the existence of an organisation. And Richard, um, as an economist, do you think that capitalism would be better if it did focus more on the things you've been talking about, the happiness of the workforce in a, in a more general way? I think it would. Um, I mean, I think there are many good employers. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not in, in, in a rant against um, existing capitalism in, in all its forms at all. Um, but I do think that there are many uh, employers uh, who, who don't provide much enjoyment to their workers. Um, I mean, when you do these surveys, um, work is, is typically the least enjoyable time of the day for most, uh, for the average Britain and the average American. Um, and the worst time of, the, of, of all in the day uh, is when they're with their line manager. I mean, this is, I find, deeply depressing. I mean, the person who should be inspiring you, making you feel appreciated, um, uh, is the person who's turning you off and making you feel bad. Uh, that can't be right. And I think that there is a, a, a style of management which has been promoted by many business schools uh, to sort of drive the last ounce out of all the workers, um, which has taken the joy out of a lot of work. And uh, that's, a, that's a mistake. I mean, even if output goes up, if, if enjoyment goes down, uh, it doesn't make sense. So I think we've got to get um, away from this um, sort of technocratic uh, style of, of management by objectives achieved through fear uh, to a, a much more generous and inspirational form of management um, and uh, I think that that that's that's that, that's a, a huge huge task for for business schools and for for companies obviously um, who who are have led too far in the opposite direction so thinking about that in the context of your own career you um you graduated from King's College Cambridge um, what did you do then? Oh, I became a school teacher in a comprehensive school. Um, and I went to the London School of Economics in the evening to educate myself. And, and the result of that was that I was uh, appointed research officer for the Robbins Committee on Higher Education. And uh, I never went back to school teaching because they got me to go to London School of Economics as a researcher. And uh, I then became an economist. I've stayed there ever since. It's a wonderful place, uh, and it allows you to do all sorts of uh, of, of interesting things. So I've I've uh, been uh, 
involved, well, working with the Russian government, working with the British government, uh, uh, and uh, setting up voluntary associations. We led a campaign against unemployment in the 1980s. Then this action of happiness. You can do many things from an academic base, which I've been, been very lucky uh, to be able to do. But I do think that economics is a great framework for thinking about social policy. And I think it's not surprising that economists have, have achieved this um, rather unusual um, prestige, as I think one would have to say, um, because they have a, a system um, of thinking in terms of maximization of some objective. And, and this would be in my mind, the overall happiness of society. Um, and then thinking that you should judge priorities by uh, how far they contribute to that objective. So that's what, what I'm now trying to promote, that the government would make the well-being of the people its objective, um, use the evidence on what produces well-being, um, and spend money in a way that produces the most well-being that can be produced from the available resources. And it felt as though 10 years ago with David Cameron that there was a move in the UK in that direction, which has sort of subsequently stalled a little. Yes, well, David Cameron thought like that, that way, um, but uh, he um, presided over a, uh, a, a government which was in financial, uh, con con had financial constraints. Um, I think the, the time has now come for the idea to come back. Uh, we need a different kind of vision as we come out of COVID. Uh, and I think this is a very good moment. I mean, in the meantime, the idea has gained a great deal more ground worldwide. Um, and we've got some countries which have adopted it, like New, New Zealand um, has adopted it, and the Scottish government ha have adopted it. Uh, the EU have in principle adopted it, um, though they haven't done very much about it. Um, the OECD have, have promoted the measurement of, of well-being um, in every member country. So there's a lot more momentum behind it now than there was when Cameron, in a way, stuck his, stuck his, stuck his head out <laughs> on a limb. Um, that, that's not quite what, uh, what I was meant to say, but uh, <laughs> he went out on a limb. <laughs> uh, and um, I think uh, now there's a much more solid base for it and much more solid scientific knowledge. And, and Richard, you've written a number of books on happiness. Uh, Can We Be Happier, which I recommend everybody should read. But also, um, if I may say so, your, your seminal work, Happiness, Lessons from a New Science. Uh, and it's recently been updated again. Um, but do you just want to talk to us about that book and what you're you're setting out in that book that there isn't a correlation necessarily between growth in income and, and happiness and what does make you happy so for those that haven't read it um what are the key points from from that book from the the the, the latest book which is can we be happier which i i think is hopefully also the most readable <laughs> um uh, I, I think there are two points, I and mean, first is the point that I, that we've been talking about already, uh, that we must have um, 
a, a more humane culture. You've got to have a degree of, of clarity uh, 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 in everybody's mind that this is what we're, we're trying to do. We're trying to produce a happier society. And, and then we, each of ourselves, are trying to contribute uh, to that in the way that we live. But secondly, that we've got a lot of evidence <laughs> that we can use in trying to construct a happier society because we now know, especially from lots of surveys that have been done, what are the main factors that uh, influence people's happiness. So uh, in Britain uh, at the moment, there's a huge spread of happiness and the same is true in every other country. We've got these data for every country in the world. Um, in the World Happiness Report, actually, which I'm an editor of. Um, so what explains this spread of happiness in Britain? The number one factor is a very simple one. It's, it's just mental health. I'm talking statistically. It's just mental health measured by, have you ever been diagnosed with depression or anxiety? Very simple question. That explains more variation, much more, than, for example, the inequality of income. So number one factor is mental health, um, and physical health is also important, but less so. And then the, the next set of, it, of really important factors are to do with human relationships. So there's a human relation in the family. Um, have you got a, a, a partner? Uh, are you getting on with your partner and with your, uh, with your children? Are you happy with how your children are doing? Um, then work relationships the quality of work comes through as one of the most important factors of all in explaining this variation of happiness in the population uh, that surprised me uh, i have to say that it came through so strong in our statistical work and then of course is community you know, do you feel safe in the community and is the community friendly and so on and actually below all of those comes income inequality. So this makes me feel very strongly about the policy directions in which our government needs to go. I mean, first, we need much more uh, priority for mental health, people suffering from mental health problems, because we've got very good treatments, but they're not properly available to people who need them. So I want a separate budget for mental health within the NHS, otherwise it's always going to get robbed. Uh, for the physical health services. Um, then I want much more attention to the whole of what you might call the social infrastructure in our society, um, by which I mean really cradle to grave. Children's services, youth services, proper places where people can enjoy and learn from adults and from friends. Um, old people's services, uh, proper social care, of course. And I must say, <laughs> am I allowed to say this too, I hope, that my heart sank when I heard the Prime Minister saying the priority is build, build, build. Something which you can see and touch. What a, a terribly materialistic uh, approach to solving the problem of producing a worthwhile life in this country for the people of this country so uh, we have got to get our priorities based uh, on, on well-being and that affects uh, the priorities of government the priorities of ngos uh, 
and of course our personal priorities. And, and what about a policy for the workplace? If, as you say in the book and as you draw out in the book, that work is important to people's well-being and happiness, what would you do in that space to improve things? I, I think we've got to have situations in which, uh, uh, well, two things. Uh, first, situations in which people have more control over their work situation. And there have been, and I reported in the book, uh, a, a very big trial led by MIT and other universities in America um, to uh, arrange for uh, um, more consultation at the level of the team as to how the work of the team is organized so that it is both helpful to the well-being of the individual workers um, but also conducive to the effectiveness of the, of the, of the, of the work of the team. Um, that was shown to cut, cut quitting by a third immediately that was introduced uh, and raised work satisfaction by something like, like 10%. So that's one direction. The other, I think, is, is to um, get rewards back onto a team basis. Um, I think that the attempts that have been made and pushed by business schools uh, to distinguish between workers in a team, uh, to rank them uh, on an annual or even more frequent basis um, for the purposes of bonus, when they're all working in a team, uh, has been incredibly counterproductive and misery-inducing. Um, because one of the most enjoyable things in life is to work with other people rather than against other people. Uh, and we, we want people to have team spirit, uh, and I'm, I'm not against competition between teams, but I am against uh, horrible um, competition within the team. Of course, in the end, someone will get promoted and somebody else won't, that's inevitable. But we don't have to be focused on that um, uh, uh, you know, every moment of the day. We should be thinking about our collective effort rather than where each of us is standing relative to our to our colleagues. So those are two things which I think really need to be uh, changed more, more uh, at the team level, more, more workers or control and involvement in, in decisions um, and a better system uh, of reward. And what's interesting on that, um, during my three and a half decades with the John Lewis Partnership, which is um, owned in trust for all the people working in the business, and whose um, primary purpose is the happiness of the people that work there, uh, everything was on team bonus. There were no individual bonuses. So the bonus at the end of the year was the same percentage whether you were uh, running the business or whether you were um, filling shelves or, or working on a checkout. Uh, it was a collective effort. There were no sales incentives. Yeah, uh, it did feel that everybody was, was in it. So I, I would concur with you, Richard. And, and can we just talk for a minute about um, the work, particularly in, in, in your happiness book, where you talk about the fact that since the Second World War, living standards have increased tremendously. Um, and yet you talk about happiness not really increasing and alcoholism and, and other mental health problems increasing. And I know that in more recent times, people have started to push back a little against that and said, 
oh no, well, as people do get uh, wealthier, they are happier. And I know that you argue that it's about relative, not absolute. But, but where's your thinking now on, on um, the, more, the more money you have, the happier you are? Well, there's a, there's a famous Easterlin paradox, of course, which is that um, within a given country, uh, on average, uh, richer people are happier than, than poorer people. Um, I mean, it's not a huge difference, but there is a, there is, uh, there is a difference. Um, yet, over time, in some countries, and particularly true of America, it's also true of West Germany, um, despite phenomenal economic growth, especially in the, the early part of the post-war period, uh, there has been no increase in happiness. Uh, so how to explain those two phenomena? And of course, the, the, the answer, uh, the first answer is that pe people, when they care about their income, and benefit from their income, do so because of how their income compares with uh, with other people's income with or with some norm um, and obviously if what matters is how your income compares with other people um, if everybody gets richer <laughs> um, nobody gets happier because nobody improves relative to uh, anybody else uh, or some go up and some go down but that cancels out so I think that the I mean I've done some work on this myself there's a huge amount of evidence uh, for uh, this kind of social comparison that people are, are uh, what's really important to people is, is, is not their income because of its absolute spending power that it conveys, um, but because of whether it enables them to do things relative to what other people can do. So, I mean, I remember, for example, you know, when one was young, uh, you could give a girl a rose. I mean, that was great. That was a real present. Now, you, now you've got to give them twelve roses. I mean, it's it's that because that's the the norm has changed because everybody's richer and they can afford twelve roses. So it's mean if you only give one rose. I think that's a very important part of it. And some people think psychologists tend to think that uh, habituation is also important. And it's certainly true that. Um, People often, for example, buy a bigger house because they think it'll make them uh, feel better. Um, but very soon, and it, indeed in a while, but very soon they get so used to it that they go back to where they were before, that an element of, of habituation. Um, so I think that you know, growth is, is, is a huge, huge part of the human story. Uh, and I think the growth from the growth from the, the kind of poverty that existed even in Europe in the early post-war period um, has undoubtedly been beneficial. Some countries have, have increased their happiness uh, over the recorded period, let's say the last 50 years. Britain is one of them. I'm sure that reduction in ab absolute poverty has helped in that. And I think, and I'm, I'm absolutely not against growth, I think fundamentally growth is uh, inevitable. It's just an expression of human creativity. All growth means is finding a way of doing something better. I mean, we all used to carry our suitcases. Then we discovered that we could put two two wheels on them. Um, then we discovered we could put four wheels on them. I mean, that's growth. That is what growth is. Um, so um, 
it's, it's silly to be against growth. We obviously don't want to be in, uh, in favor of growth, which is um, hugely polluting to the, the planet. That's a different thing altogether. Um, and much of the growth that we're having at the moment um, is essentially embodied in, in, in this one little iPhone, which we're, we're currently talking on. Um, it's, just, it's just extraordinary the amount of growth embodied in that. Um, so not against growth, but not making growth the, the idol and not making money the idol. And I think that you know, one of the main findings of happiness research is that people have a tendency because money is so salient, uh, and you know, you, you it, part of your, your, it's a very easily identifiable, identifi identifiable bit of your ego, uh, what you earn, that it, it gets uh, over uh, much attention relative to the things which actually, when you really think about it, are so vital to your happiness, like your relationship with your family and so on. So. Um, Everything in balance. I think you mentioned the, the, the Greeks, uh, the happy mean, as, as Socrates uh, and Aristotle said. Th this is this is what we should be aiming at. And and Richard, um, when you look back uh, over your incredible working life and the contribution you've made to the debate about the importance of happiness and economics, which roles have you been happiest in? Oh. <laughs> It's interesting, actually. I've, I've had many. The most exciting things I've done was first working for the Robbins Committee. That was extraordinary because we knew the government was going to implement our uh, re uh, um, recommendations. Then very important in the 80s was one of working with two wonderful colleagues on trying to understand what on earth was going on to unemployment and inflation and being part of the campaign to to reduce the, the underlying rate of, of unemployment by better policies toward the unemployed, active labour market policy, which I think has now been adopted much more widely. In fact, Rishi Sunak just, just um, put aside two, two billion pounds <laughs> for precisely that purpose, which I was very happy about. So that was another very exciting thing. Then very exciting, um, after uh, writing my first happiness book, I, I thought, what can I do that will actually practically influence happiness in this country? And I thought, really help people suffering from mental illness to get the treatments that they need. Um, so I was lucky in pairing up with a wonderful uh, psychologist called David Clark and um, making the case for what is now called the Improving Access Psychological Therapies program, um, which is, is now treating over 600,000 people a year with 50% of them recovering to a de decent enjoyment of life. I think that's, that's extraordinarily important. But I'm also very excited about the overall, what I, what I think of as the World Happiness Movement. Um, because this is this is a movement for this better culture that we're talking about, more generous, more more um, warm-hearted, um, other-oriented culture, um, based on a, an understanding of, of the fundamentals, fundamental human need that we all have, 
um, for good 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 human relationships and and good mental health. Uh, I think that that is something that is just going so strongly uh, throughout the world. It's 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 not noticed as much as it should be in the media. It's a sort of underground movement. Of, I keep on meeting people um, who meditate, <laughs> uh, um, but they never tell anybody um, because it's considered bizarre. Uh, and these include cabinet ministers, chief executives and others. Um, I think there's a, there's a new gender culture coming in um, uh, from the bottom up, um, but there's also much more interest from the top down um, in promoting a better culture. You're a wonderful part of that, Mark, if I may say so. Um, and uh, I, I think, in the in the end, it, it, this is bound to 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 uh, to win um, because it's got uh, evidence on its side and it's got um, the basic aspirations of people behind it. So. That's the thing I'm most enjoying at the moment. Uh, and Richard, can I just thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, it, it has been, as ever, uh, wonderful talking to you. You are an absolute inspiration. Uh, I can think of nothing more important than to have uh, spent as much time as you have thinking about happiness, people's happiness, why it's important for the individual, why it's important for society why it's important for economics and um, I wish you continued power uh, in all of your efforts and uh, for everybody listening uh, I suggest you go and read uh, at least two of Richard's books his latest book can we be happier and also happiness lessons from a new science Richard thank you very much indeed well thank you uh, thank you for that wonderful advert <laughs> <laughs>